Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we will be starting our look at Bill Clinton by discussing the new Democrats that emerged in the late 1980s. And to help us with that, we have writer and podcaster from the Bunga Bunga podcast, Alex Hochuli. Hi Alex, thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Um, before we... we kind of get into the show proper. Uh, Alex, is, do you want to just maybe introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and uh, maybe in particular your, your podcast? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer, a research consultant and translator uh, based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I also uh, am one of the co-hosts and co-producers of Alfa Bunga Bunga or Bunga Cast for short. It's uh, easier to find that way as well. So <laughs> because we're at Bunga Cast and all these other places. So um so yeah, and it's a podcast that's been running for four years now, I think, if I'm getting my uh, dates correct, um, which started already from the premise that the end of history, that kind of deadening period where there was no politics is now ending and we're entering into a new and confusing age. So the task is to try to clarify things and try to explain them, explain how politics uh, really works to ourselves and, and to our audience. Um, and we also have a book coming out, which uh, seeks to do just that called The End of the End of History, which will be out in June. Um, if people are interested, it's already kind of there on uh, on several large and small uh, book vendor websites. So wherever you like to, to get it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm sure that will be of great interest. Um, so today we will be looking at, I guess, the kind of period which uh, echoed in the 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 end of history, as it were, which is the late 80s and early 90s and the, the new Democrats. Uh, Toby, can you maybe just kick us off by giving some background to the new Democrats and set the scene for us a bit? Well, the, the new Democrats really emerged with the start of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was started by Al Fram, who used to be the leader of the, uh, the caucus in uh, Congress. But really, the new the ideas that created the New Democrats started from basically about 1968. It was a sense that the Democrats were starting to not be as strong with their core base of working class and middle class voters. Um, Hubert Humphrey narrowly lost to Richard Nixon in that 1968 election, but there were fissures between this new emerging um, left-wing young rights movements and then the older um, democratic uh, constituencies. And then in 1972, Nixon destroyed McGovern in a, in a landslide victory. And in 76, the Democrats came back a little bit. Um, Carter won, although it was a very, very tight election on the heels of Watergate. And in 1980, the Democrats were again defeated quite handily by uh, Ronald Reagan. And then in 1984, there was a landslide victory by Reagan. Reagan won 49 states against Mondale. Um, and then in 1988, the Democrats thought that because Reagan was you know, going off the scene, because inflation wasn't such a big issue, then maybe they could win an election or maybe they could run close to another election. But Dukakis loses in the London landslide to um, Her George Herbert Walker, Walker Bush by 
you know, seven, eight percent percentage points. So a lot of Democrats are noticing that they can't win elections anymore. And the the constituencies that used to be, you know, intrinsic to the Democratic vote, the the, old, the middle class voters that, that they would always talk about, um, were no longer voting for the Democratic Party. They were in many ways alienated from the African American constituencies, which started to become the really a dominant dominant uh, group in the the Democratic Party. Um, and I think that created a sense that. The Democratic Party was catering to African-Americans. It was catering to liberals. Mondale and uh, Dukakis were winning liberals and were winning African-Americans, but they weren't winning these constituencies anymore. And even in 1984, actually, young people between the ages of 18 and 30 went for Ronald Reagan. So it was almost like the older people were the liberals and the, the younger people were conservatives. Much of this was because of the emerging new uh, right movement that started um, in the 1950s and 60s with Wilmoth Buckley and then got power through people like Ronald Reagan and um, George Herbert Walker Bush. And it really seemed like the Democrats really had to come up with a new strategy in order to become electable again. And I think that um, it, so there was people like Al Frum and then people like Bill Clinton who had campaigned for Dem the Democrats before. Bill Clinton had campaigned for George McGovern, for example. But what he realized in the McGovern campaign is that the Democrats couldn't really sell these welfare programs that they, they had been selling before. They seemed to be unpatriotic. You know, people saw Democrats, hippies, and um, the, all, all the groups that were attached to the Democrats is not really representing them there was resentment towards african americans who didn't who people didn't seem to feel were um were, were putting things in they, they were entitled as opposed to you know trying to uh, ask what the um i mean they were and, and i think that that is this that is really the background for the the new democrats uh in the U.S. context, but this movement away from center-left social democratic parties was a worldwide movement that was, was happening. And there's many reasons why people have, have um, theorized why this happened, but it wasn't just a, a U.S. Um, thing. And I think that we can get on to the wider third way context uh, now well that kind of sets us up quite nicely uh alex maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the third way and about how that kind of movement came together and as toby says it wasn't just a a new democrat thing in in america yeah so i mean the the third way of course was um something which ended up featuring across a lot of western governments um especially throughout the 90s uh, you probably had centre-left governments implementing what would be called neoliberal policy, um, effectively centre-right, pro-market, liberal economics um, across the West, across Scandinavia, uh, the Benelux, um, the US, obviously, with Clinton and and probably maybe most famously with, with Blair and the new Labour governments uh, in the UK from 1997 onwards. Um, and what it, what it basically proposed was a combination of centre-right economics and centre-left social policy 
but I think it would be misguided to see it as merely centrism, merely um, some unity of, of left and right, a combination of, of both those features. Because really what the third way was, was a normalization of neoliberalism, basically an, an acceptance of all the constraints of uh, neoliberal government, of uh, uh, restricting state intervention in the economy, um, as a, and, uh, and really trying to provide some forms of assuaging uh, the effects of those policies, but in a, in a really sort of limited sort of way. So what you have is that you had the, the a rad, radical right governments, as you were describing, you know, Reagan um, and Thatcher, who were the most kind of pure neoliberal formula, um, who confronted and defeated the left and the working class, but also um, saw out the, the Soviet Union and, and its eventual dismemberment as well. Um, so what you have is, is a world where there's no longer any systemic alternative no longer outside, whether you look to the Soviet Union or even to China, which by that point was uh, initiating liberal reforms. But there was no real alternative at home either because the form that that alternative took um, of, of the organized working class and the left had been really roundly defeated um, and probably most uh, emphatically um, and, and kind of cataclysmically in Britain with the 1984-85 minor strike. So that's all the backdrop. So you enter this new world of, of the new world order of the post-Cold War era in the 1990s, and there is no real systemic alternative. So what these center-left governments uh, portraying themselves as the third way uh, do is really a consolidation of the new terrain. So like, I mean, some people have said, you know, th this is kind of you know, Thatcher danced on the grave of the working class. Well, you know, if, if a government like Thatcher danced on the grave of the working class, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, for that matter, as well, the whole third way construction was a, was some was more like smoothing over the ground above the tomb and planting some flowers. So we can kind of forget that this trauma ever happened, that there ever was this epochal struggle between left and right, between labor and capital, between socialism and capitalism. Um, and instead, that politics is just a matter of administrating, of administrating a settled order where we all know what the general rules are, um, and we can just kind of make little measures to one side or the other. And that's basically um, what the third way was. And I mean, there's many other features, which, I, which maybe you can ask me about, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, do you want to just delve into some of those features now? Is, is sure, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I think one way to characterize it at a kind of general level is that um, if, if you take kind of neoliberal governments, and I include, you know, Reagan and Thatcher, as well as Blair and Clinton, um, and also all those that kind of came after, they all have an, a certain ideological supplement to what is basically, you know, the neo, their kind of neoliberal economic policies. And that ideological supplement for Reagan and Thatcher was social conservatism uh, and national self-assertion. So it was winning the Cold War or maybe in Britain's case, reverting national decline. So, you know, mm. um, invading, trying to take back the Malvinas from Argentina um, and, and a kind of whole raft of kind of more traditionally socially conservative measures. For the third way, it was kind of, it was kind of the opposite. It was more like trying to... Um, trying to kind of assuage any real political passions to kind of forget that politics ever existed. Um, so it was presented as ideology, ideology free, uh, that there were no real enemies, that politics was just a matter of social cohesion and political co consensus. And that was, and social co cohesion then is achieved by um, maybe taking care of the few losers that there are from uh, the market. So whereas 
Thatcher presented an all-out assault on, on the working class um, and presented this vision of there's no society, you know, there's only family, the only the family unit really exists. Uh, Blair comes back and tries to present a, a more um, consensual, uh, consensual kind of softer vision of, of that um, by helping out the losers. Now, of course, this is important because it's, it's no longer a question of um, gains or losses for the working class about defending wages and living standards, but becomes about uh, limiting social exclusion. So the basic idea there is that the market works and the market works for everyone except for a couple of people who happen to lose, and then the government will come in and provide you with tax credits. So, I mean, the Clinton government um, instituted some you know, tax credits uh, for the working poor, um, and the new Labour government did similar things. So the, the, the idea there is that you have a certain de deserving poor who deserve help from the state, but basically everybody else is, is there, um, there on their own. Um, and the idea is supposedly that everybody wins, you know, and you had this idea under the Blair uh, period that everybody's middle class now, that there is basically no working class anymore. So this fundamental antagonism in society no longer exists. Everybody's middle class, everybody's a consumer, um, that, and that the kind of rules of the game work for everybody. So looking at this from the, the American side, then, I suppose it's a general acceptance that um, this is something we've, we've talked about on the show previously is that Reagan essentially won the argument as far as how America saw the kind of um, the financial and uh, financial matters of America and how American sort of financial regulations and systems would continue to work. And I think it'd be fair to say that this this new Democrat way, even though it's not maybe as radical as uh, you know Thatcherism, it. it as you described there, it is very much building on this kind of recon, recon, recognized sort of um, market-friendly approach to how um, government should should approach um, the economy and how it should approach big business and how it should approach, um, you know, what we consider, I guess, the institutions that have continued on to this day. Is, is that is that probably a fair assessment of, of this of this third way? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I mean, as you said at the, at the beginning, right there, you know, it's it's about winning the argument there. So it's more just now about administering the new terrain that exists. Um, and you know, there's some continuation. I think that there's a, a, a we remember back maybe the way maybe not in our own personal uh, memories, but you know, we kind of even those who, of us who didn't live through you know Reagan or, or kind of um, or have real memories of the early Blair or Clinton periods. That, they, that those governments were all very socially liberal. And there was a lot of signaling towards that, but there was also kind of um, some quite conservative policies, you know, especially on, on crime. Mm -hmm. um, the, on Clinton, I'm sure as you have already discussed and will discuss uh, that, you know, the 94 crime bill introduced a lot of really heavy handed policies like the three strikes and you're out uh, law. And also, and this was what was novel about it, which I guess distinguished it from, the earlier period of Reagan and Thatcher, which is increasingly kind of micromanaging behavioral management policies. Um, so instead of trying to ameliorate social conditions, either by like directly fighting crime by, by um, you know, punitive measures or by rehabilitating or by trying to, um, let's say, redistribute income for, as a way of reducing crime, you had uh, increasingly sort of micromanagerial uh, approaches. So in Britain, you famously had ASBOs, antisocial behavior orders. Um, and in like Clinton brought in 
um, like one strike to be evicted from public housing. So if you've committed a crime and live in public housing, um, you know, you can be evicted. So it's various ways of kind of managing behavior and, um, and effectively restricting freedom. Um, I'd be interested to talk a little bit about um, on the on the American side in particular about how this new Democrat side kind of took over the, the Democratic Party on the main main sort of stream level and how it differs from the new left. And you know, are, are we talking about you know when we look at something like the, the sort of Trumpism that that came in today? You know, it 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 was it was very clear. You know, you have this one figure. There isn't really well. To my knowledge, there's you know we didn't really have a Trump figure, as it were, for the New Democrats. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about how the sort of establishment of the Democrats that came before um, the New Democrat wave came in compared to what eventually became the the Democratic Party for the '92 election? Do you know? I think I think that a lot of those figures were were older. Mm-hmm. So people like Mondale, older and um, he lost, so he didn't have really legitimacy. Tip O'Neill was quite old. Towards uh, he was a um, leader of the house. Um, he was quite old. Um, uh, Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy was quite old. So that generation of political leaders who had been, you know, stalwarts of liberalism, mm-hmm. they were going off the scene, so matched could, yeah. matched by this um wave of um electoral defeats that the democrats were experiencing especially on the presidential level an interesting thing about this thing is that on the um congressional level and the house and the senate the democrats were maintaining um some seats and liberals who tried to fight against the democratic leadership uh, council fight against al from and fight against bill clinton they would say you know like you know on the congressional level we're still well, obviously a lot of those congressional gains were going to be withered away in, in 1994 1995 but they were still strong they were still strong in the south you know so that was an argument against them that, that these presidential defeats and reagan you know reagan's a popular guy you know he's well he's well liked but even in, in 84 on the congressional level we weren't losing that much so was it the American people buying the Reagan agenda or was it them buying Reagan, you know? So that was always an argument against, against this thing at the time by older liberals, especially people like, um, like Mario Cuomo, who did the, um, the, the Taylor Two City speech at uh, the convention in, in, in 84, telling you know reagan that there is there's hurt there's 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 despair in in you know in your shining city on the hill and cuomo was touted as a potential candidate for 1992 but he saw the the strength of hw bush especially after the the successes in the uh, middle east and he didn't think he was going to run so there was still some you know liberal pushback against this and uh, on the um on the new left, there the new left had really entered the pol- the politics of the Democratic the Democrat Party. Traditionally, this you know, Labour Party with uh, strong sort of African American support, but th- there was these new rights movements, and many people thought that these rights movements were going to take over the Democratic Party. You know, and these uh, gay rights, um, uh, you know, uh, 
drug legalization, social these social movements. Many people thought that these were going to be these social liberal movements going to take, and and the thing about it is that a lot of these movements were wedded to a more interventionist government through the campaigns of people like uh, Jesse Jackson, for example, Jesse Jackson who used to work for Martin Luther King and got into democratic uh, politics and been quite successful in in. 84 and in 88 creating this rainbow coalition of the marginalized and the unheard but he wasn't winning primaries and he wasn't winning elections and i think as soon as the dlc sort of sorted itself out uh by the early 90s that they had strong candidates people like uh like songus who was um is considered an atari democrat you know he was about um bringing new technology to his area, bringing new insight, focusing on education and people like Bill Clinton uh, himself. So yeah, I think much of the strength of the liberals was was drawn, was worn out because of the age of the liberals and the defeats that they had experienced. Although they still had an argument on the congressional level about this, the strength of the Democratic Party. But I, I do want to move into, because... Um, Alex has said a lot of really good things about um, the, 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 the structure in the area, but I, I, I do want to also lean, lean into what the New Democrats thought about the new man, because he, he talked about um, it being a sort of classless society, and there's the book about the 90s, Britain being a classless society, and in America... You know, I mean, even as far back as to Tocqueville, there's always this idea that America's just middle class, right? And in and someone like Bill Clinton, Clinton had actually come from a quite precarious situation growing up. You know, his grandparents had gone through the depression. His grandfather owned a store. He had, he had, he had drove an ice cream truck. His father died three months before Clinton was born. His mother was, was a nurse. And she married Roger Clinton, who was a, you know, an alcoholic who had been a prison who, you know, he was underemployed, didn't work that much. And uh, sometimes he would beat on his wife and Bill would come in with a, he came in with a golf club once trying to get him off them. And so he had a, he had a difficult upbringing socioeconomically, not necessarily, you know, socially, like Clinton talks quite happily about his his childhood you know he made many friends he was very very good in school which is super important to the way he thinks actually he's very very good in school and he always thought that people like him they just never got a chance and through education through the education that he had you know in school ending up going to georgetown being a road scholar going to oxford yale law you know he he he'd done tremendously well for himself and he felt that only if we could get education to these people, education to people like the people I grew up in, in Hope, Arkansas, or Hot Springs, Arkansas, then we could create a society of virtue where, where people had the opportunities that they needed, had the education that they needed, and then we could create this class of society so that the, that the entitlements of the, the old liberal order wouldn't necessarily be needed. So he focused on welfare reform. Uh, you know, people had to work in order to get welfare, but, you know, before people could just get welfare, but now they had to work to get welfare. And he focused on education. 
in Arkansas. Arkansas became a little experiment of his education reforms. Arkansas used to be a, a, a state with a very, very poor educational record. And he went in there and pushed through education programs. And, and, but he also had like a, a, a sort of taxes and spend agenda, but then he was really defeated in his election and in, I think in 78. And so when he came back, he was more fiscally conservative, but he still focused on education. And because of his own background and his feelings, he, he, I think he lacked the feelings of the old liberals who were much more paternalistic. I think they came from a background a higher socioeconomic background than the voters that they worked for. But Bill Clinton really came from that background and he sort of felt empowered and felt that he could empower people. And that's why Bill Clinton is really attracted to this third way agenda himself. Um, I don't know who wants to pick up this question, but I was kind of hoping to maybe move on a little bit to who were the kind of prime candidates on the Democratic side coming up to the, the 92 election. You know, obviously we, we know Bill Clinton actually came out on top there. And and just one one, one thing before we, we go into the election, there is um, a bridge to this, I think, in uh, the figure called uh, Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster at the time. And when he was trying to focus the Democrats' mind on the 1992 election, he focused on a place called um, Macomb County which was the site of the, the, famous, um, the famous Reagan Democrats. You know, they always talk about the Reagan Democrats, people Reagan Democrats. The Cone County was a, you know, the, an FDR liberal stronghold in Michigan. And they, they voted for FDR. But then in 68, in the primaries, they voted for George Wallace because Wallace was resentful towards African-Americans and, you know, he, he wasn't as um, focused on entitlement programs as, as they had been. And um, so Wallace managed to win 66% in the primary. And then um, Reagan wins Macomb County by over 60%. And it's only when Clinton comes in 92 that he wins back Macomb County. And the Macomb County, Greenberg interviewed these people and, and the feeling he got from these people is that these traditional Democratic voters felt squeezed and neglected and pressed on one side by rich people who cared, who carried few burdens and paid no taxes, and the other side by poor black people who are the recipients of free programs and also paid no taxes. These voters were, and are the middle classes quite literally cramped and supporting both ends. So there was a sense by people, these voters, Many of them were actually also scared about, you know, trade and NAFTA and, and things that Bill Clinton would push forward in his presidency. But there was a sense by them that, you know, we're not the rich people, but there's also these black people who don't, who aren't communitarian. They're not paying into the system like we are. And I think third way Democrats were able to get into the minds of these voters, get it to, to, to how they felt what their resentments are, what their hopes were, and attract them. And I think it's, it's, it's this sociological group that becomes the basis of this kind of lurch to the center by um, formerly social democratic parties in, in um, America and in the, uh, the rest of the world. 
Alex, is there anything you want to add to that? I did want to make a reference to something which I think Toby mentioned earlier, which is the New Democrats' relationship to uh, the what was mm-hmm. the Democratic establishment prior to that. And I, I think it's interesting they said that it was much more paternalistic um, prior to that. And there's an important kind of aspect of image to the third way, which is important. Of course, you know, all politics has its image, but for the third way, image was particularly important. Um, and therefore, it's probably worth discussing. So sure. they, they wanted to present an image of youth, of competency, and of modernization above all. And that actually was not just a, a matter of aesthetics or, or even just of rhetoric, but actually played an important political role because it was about being modern mean, meant being up to date, um, which meant uh, dealing with the constraints of globalization. And of course, globalization was always a blackmail that was brought in, this objective force that twists your hands. That means you have to do, you have to bring in NAFTA, you have to, um, you have to liberalize trade, you have to deregulate, otherwise, you know, uh, jobs will go overseas or whatever the, the blackmail might be in whatever specific policy case might be. So I think that that presentation of modernity and youth runs kind of hand in hand. Um, and part of it is just political marketing, but part of it actually uh, performs an important political role uh, in, in, in kind of bolstering those, the part the vision of third way politics, which again, accepts the, the neoliberal constraints. Um, and I d- maybe just take this opportunity to make reference to one other thing, which I think maybe exemplifies an aspect of, of the rhetoric. Um, so Clinton on the campaign trail, I think in September, so right before the election, he says, if we let this be about tax and spend and trickle down, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. This is about whether we have the courage to face up to the real- realities of modern life. Now, on one level, that just sounds completely platitudinous, and you can <laughs> ignore that and go, "Well, that's just you know whatever." Not, but then we should, but we should ignore. I'm the we should, for modern life. Well, exactly. But then you should analyze. Okay, but what is the specific <laughs> nature of that platitude, right? So it's no longer about tax and spend. So no longer uh, the old, you know, more corporatist arrangements of um, of the Democrats from from the '70s until well up until the '70s, um, and it's not the trickle down of Reaganomics. Um, of course, he doesn't pr- propose anything else in, in its stead. So it obviously means that basically a continuation of Reaganomics um, in, in large sense. Um, but also that we ought to have the, we, it ought to be about whether we have the courage to face up to the realities of modern life. So again, that's about this new age of globalization, which sets certain constraints. Those constraints are re, uh, are interpreted and, and kind of sold back to people as possibilities, right? To like pull your, to, to, participate in the, in the economy, to be a consumer, to mm-hmm. um, e- even to kind of, you know, I think the reference to Bill Clinton's biography was apposite there, you know, in terms of him seeing just do well in school and, and, and try to get by on, you know, um, on your own force of will. Um, that's part of it. And that's obviously presented in, in a kind of more optimistic fashion. But what it really is, is about accepting um, certain political constraints that the new post-Cold War uh, era proposes. And uh, let me just add one, one more thing as well about the, about the youth and modernity question, because it also means giving up the, the attachments of the past. So that means race and it means empire and it means whatever else. So it's no longer the kind of social conservatism of, of Reagan. Um, and in Britain as well, you have this kind of, we don't, you know, we don't really care about empire so much with this cool Britannia now. Um, and that's, again, just an, a, another way of giving an ideological sheen to what is uh, at, at root the same political economic package. Um, before we move on to the actual election itself, I, I don't know if either of you have many thoughts on this, but 
obviously around this time we have the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the things that defined the 1980s was the relationship between America and the Soviet Union in particular, how how we saw America as having a strong leader again after Carter and having having Reagan invest in, in the military. I was, do you, does anyone kind of have thoughts on how the mindset of America kind of maybe changed before the 92 election with, you know, the Berlin Wall coming down and, you know, USSR essentially kind of uh, collapsing or at least changing and how that maybe played into this this third way? Well, I feel like they felt like they had won the, the Cold War. I mean, I always go back to H.W. Bush not really celebrating because of the kind of guy he was. And the camera is asking him, you know, why are you celebrating? And so there was a, there was a... There was a sense of jubilation. I'll do that in a few years' time. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just to unwind the whole <laughs> legacy. But there was a sense that um, that they were very victorious. I mean, H.W. Bush's approval rating shows you that. But I, I do. I actually think that this the, the the effect of the Soviet Union was longer. Like you know, in the Brezhnev period there was a feeling of drift in the Soviet Union that the economic growth um, statistics that the Soviet Union was, was putting out weren't the same anymore. Inflation in America meant that, you know, people were working hard but not receiving the rewards for their work or the perceived work rewards for their work anymore. And then you had the growth of the, the new right movement by people like William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan himself. And I think the Soviet Union adds, adds a level of context into it because the Soviet Union was dwindling. Mm-hmm. But I think by 19... And I think this this, this underlines in, in 1992, H.W. Bush couldn't win the election based on his management of the collapse mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union, which was... It, like, it was good, like, from a foreign policy standpoint the way he managed the relationship with Gorbachev, the way he did not embarrass Gorbachev, the way he did not, you know, send in troops or, you know, make a great show of it. He, he handled it quite delicately and got, and was rewarded in his approval rating, but he couldn't win the election based on it because there was a recession, you know, like mm. when Bill Clinton was on the campaign trail, he appreciated that, from Truman down to H.W. Bush, you know, um, Americans' foreign policy towards the Soviet Union, he, he, he absorbed that it was good. And, he, and if you ask him on the campaign trail, he wasn't really saying it wasn't good. But what he was talking about to people was like the people like the Macomb County people. He was talking to them about the economy, talking to them about the, the loss of jobs. He meant... Um, you know, women talking about the the, the healthcare crop coverage. This lady talking about healthcare co- coverage, and she breaks out into tears. And Bill Clinton goes over to her, and and he hugs her, and he starts crying as well. And then there's that there's that sense that you know, like um, that he's a, an emotive politician, but it's also the economy, stupid, isn't it? It's a, and, and and the actual issue in 1992 was the economy. Not the loss of the Soviet Union. The loss, the loss of the Soviet Union was a longer process, a longer process probably of the confirmation of Western neoliberals and liberals and conservatives 
that the capitalist system was superior to the to the system behind the well, iron curtain. Well, indeed, and we've never had any issues with uh, with the system in place in America or Britain or the rest of the world ever since. And everyone's just really happy with capitalism, and it's worked out well for everyone. So that's. I mean, in the future episodes, we, you know, we might think about like the the nineties became a period of growth um, based on some bubbles, but you know, a period of four percent growth annually that we haven't even ex- we haven't experienced since the end of the Clinton period. You know? yep. And much of the policies that Clinton initiated and after his welfare policy um, and, and his financial regulation policies, all of them have fallen into disrepute. But the economy then was really good. So Bill Clinton is reflected on as having a mixed record, but no one really knows the impact he actually had on the economy in in, in the 90s. Yep. But it was a period of retrenchment for people like the McCone County people. They they were losing their, their, their jobs because of, of NAFTA. They were losing their jobs because of uh, globalization. The social welfare state was being retrenched. And then a lot of those issues we are you know dealing with right now, but back then, as Alex says, there was a much more optimistic view about the future. Like, you know, Tony Blair, things can only get, get better. And <laughs> he's often criticized uh, Jeremy Corbyn for not being modern enough, you know, like this, this sort of eternal modernity that's apparently the same as it was in, you know, 1992. But, but yeah, so there's that sense that back then these policies were considered to be to be good and considered to be the future. And it was, you know, we were considered to be moving towards this, this classless um, utopia or, or at least um, an, an ideal society, I think, of some sort of liberal virtue, which people like Clinton maybe thought was reflected in their, their, their own lives and their own, their own experience. Okay, so looking then at the 92 election. Um, Vaughn, we, we discussed a little bit previously on, a, on another episode about the 92 election and about your favourite politician of all, all time. Uh, all Ross, time, yes. Ross, Ross Pro. Uh, before, before we get into that, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on me criticising Jimmy Carter and praising capitalism. I take it you were happy with both those takes? <laughs> um, I was quite miserable, but... Okay. You couldn't hear my internal turmoil over that. Okay. Well, could you maybe uh, give us uh, an introduction to the 92 election? And it, it'd been slightly different in the sense that we have three candidates and slightly different in the sense that one of them was a, a different type of person. <laughs> That's putting it very mildly. <laughs> okay. So um, everything that Alex and Toby have said so far really sets up for this, I think. Um, Clinton really embodies a lot of this this um, neoliberal new democrat kind of economic center right um, social center left so it's really important to put this into context like you're saying this was um, an abnormal election with 
three candidates. And on one side, you had the straight-laced traditional politician in George Bush. Um, and then on the very, very far other side, you had the absolute political darling, Ross Perot, um, who, who was simply bizarre. Um, and not in a Trump way bizarre because Trump is much more malicious in it. But Ross Perot yeah. is just like, like, what are you doing here, mate? Like, <laughs> what is your goal here? Um, so his informality juxtaposed to George Bush's traditional kind of seriousness really uh, lent itself towards the kind of charisma that Bill Clinton brought. Um, he could be both informal and have serious and very clear kind of um, policies for economics. And um, he had clear goals in his campaign strategy. But at the same time, he, he, the day he secured the nomination with the Democratic Party, um, he appeared on the Ars Arsenio Hall show and played the saxophone. It was a very cool kind of uh, new um, image. Like Alex was saying, this, this younger, modern, cooler kind of guy who is also competent. Um, as Toby said about the Southern kind of lock that Republicans had in recent elections, Clinton's campaign w was very kind of on the ball with it. And they, they very strategically chose another Southerner. So Clinton being from Arkansas and Al Gore being from Tennessee as his running mate really kind of rebuked any claims that could be made that their ticket was one of Northern liberals. So you can, you can see this kind of cool image um, of Clinton and his more serious kind of uh, policy sides in his acceptance speech on election night, when he's talking about how this is a turning point right after the end of the Cold War and moving into um, a new century, that we need to empower the people to be their own people, in quotes. And he said, we need to quote, face problems too long ignored from AIDS to the environment to the conversion of our economy from a defense to a domestic economic giant. Toby, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, and I, th I think um, I think you have to go back, as, as um, Simon asked about the, the liberal reaction to this, I think you have to go back to the 1984 election where Gary Hart ran. Gary Hart was a sort of new type of politician. He was, he was thought of as glamorous. He was, a, he was considered a neoliberal at the time people were describing him as a neoliberal. He was much more um, ambitious about the prospects for technology companies and globalization than someone like Walter Mondale was. But Mondale was able to beat him by saying, you know, uh, where's the beef? Because <laughs> Gary Hart didn't really have a, you know, a, a clear manifesto about what he actually believed. But by 1992, the, you know, they, they'd created the beef and it, it was, it was Bill Clinton. It was Paul Songus. It was Al Gore. It was this new generation of Atari Democrats who are much more focused about 
education and um, trying to prepare people for globalization and the changes in the economy than the liberals of the past. And I think it feeds into an election like this in, in, um, in 1992. And I think that it that really becomes clear because H.W. Bush and people around H.W. Bush look at the Democratic Convention and they can see that, you know, I think um, Bob Dole describes it as they brought a bunch of old rundown liberals and and put them together as these new flashy new Democrats. And they was they were genuinely selling a different product and a different product that had been thought of and, and um, refined by people like uh, Galston and people like Al Fromm and people like Bill Clinton and people like Stanley Greenberg. They had really thought about the electoral failings of the Democratic Party. Many of these people actually believed in the thing. Like they, it wasn't just electoral strategy. I think um, some Southern Democrats who, who were losing um, in the in the Reagan era, only did it for political expediency. Okay, what's what's this new uh, Democratic leadership council and new Democrat thing? Let's just get on that so we can I can win an election. But many of these people actually believed in this idea of uh, this new society focused on opportunity, uh, communitarian, where you know you're punished severely for failures to conform. You know, being sent to prison or failures to work um, with, with, you know, welfare to work, punished severely. But then you're given this new opportunity to become a new type of person in this changing world. So the idea that, that, that the, the government had a positive responsibility for people was replaced by these new ideas. But they were a genuine, you know, ideological shift which i think it was it wasn't the i know some people disagree but it wasn't the triangulation and and bill clinton did triangulate and we'll talk about that in on future episodes but it wasn't the triangulation that the people thought it was a genuine idea about what was the best way forward um given the strength of conservatism in the west at that particular moment in time and i think in the election clinton does focus on the economy because there is a re- recession songless also f- um, focuses on the economy you, you had you had jerry brown in the primaries who who did that as well but they were you know they even jerry brown who was supposedly the the left-wing candidate he he, he had a tax plan that was going to have a flat tax which is like a Rand paul move almost he had some, you know, some good um, social entitlements, but he also had a flat tax so that the, the liberals were no longer confident about the policies, no longer confident about, you know, the great society, which promised, uh, you know, um, Medicare, Medicaid and and um, sort of increased endowments for parks and, and, and recreational facilities and education and the arts, all of that liberal patronage that they had been known for, that had helped them to ward away, you know, potential communist tendencies in the population. 
you know, they no longer felt that they needed to do that, and they no longer felt that it it was it, it was electorally um, going to be successful. So so they they rebranded themselves, and you could see that in the primaries through Zongus, um, Clinton, even Jerry Brown, and then later on in the um, presidency of Bill Clinton, where he does push forward with, with NAFTA, where he does. Um, institute wel- welfare to work, um, where he does focus, you know, on education, like he focused on education in Arkansas. Um, he has a healthcare plan, which that people like Al Frum and uh, Galston and, and Stanley Greenberg, which they weren't really supportive of. They didn't really think that was good. They they didn't support that at all. But Clinton tried to push that, but uh, him and Hillary Clinton failed to really get that through Congress, so what you ended up with is a as a as a legacy of what they planned to do, what they tried to do, and, and what they actually managed to to accomplish um, from the early stirrings of this new Democrats in 1985 to the 1992 campaign to the Clinton presidency. Uh, Alex, is there anything you'd like to add on the the sort of 92 election and the initial success of the new Democrats? Um, I don't think there's anything particular. No, I mean, um, uh, I mean, I, I just note, I guess that you know, th- it's still in a context of maybe what I think the, the turnout was fifty-one percent or something. Hmm. So, uh, it, and it's maybe the, the kind of not a particularly relevant point to the third way, but which it's something that at least is worth bearing in mind throughout this whole period. I mean, U.S presidential election to all election turnouts um, are lower than European, but, you know, through this period, they're all kind of, you know, basically half the population is voting. Mm -hmm. So it's still something to bear in mind, I guess, as you go forward thinking that whatever claims you make about the social attitudes, uh, political ideologies and whatever amongst the general population, you basically have the poorer half the population, which doesn't vote. Right. That is probably a good point to make. I mean, it's Um, difficult though, because, like the i mean sometimes it would be 51% sometimes it could be as high as 70% but it's always the poorer half of the population that doesn't vote and it's like when we are designing polls or trying to get at what people are thinking who's the most vital part of the population that we should focus on cuz cuz i i do agree with you there was a retrenchment by the population by the lower half of the population in terms of investing in politics and voting in this period, um, possibly because people didn't think that things could change. But I don't know, like, I do get a sense that if you look at 1984 and the young people, you know, in our age, between 18 and 30, vote for Reagan. And then they vote for Clinton but it's like, what happened? Mm. You know, why weren't they interested in Mondale anymore? Why weren't they interested in social democracy? Why did, you know, um, 1983 happen in, in Britain? You know, like what happened? And I, and I think that's, that's a question that, you know, we're still going to be discussing and trying to figure out for a long time because these corporate Democrats are now establishment Democrats, like people like 
Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have lived in the wake of the failings of, of, of liberal politicians in the 1980s yep. and constructed this kind of, and now they're, they're the establishment. And now there's a new movement of people like AOC yep. um, that's coming because of changes in, um, in the interests of young people in politics and, and you know, interest, uh, interest in socialism, interest in, more um, expansionary fiscal mm-hmm. policies, interested in, in more muscular, you know, social policy, like things like um, defund the police and things like that. So why did that change happen? And why is this change happening again? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. And I, I, I guess that is... <laughs> It, it's all it, it's it's easy to kind of put things into boxes and just say oh well the 1980s you know younger generations were trying to be like wall street and now the younger kids these days are wanting to do you know nice things that happen on tiktok and you know it, it's it's a, it's an easy picture to, to kind of put one label on one thing one on another but i get it is interesting as you say and as we've discussed earlier in in this show and in, in other shows it was younger people who were voting for reagan as well and uh, when we had Peter on the show, he was saying, you know, it it was cool to be a a Republican in the eighties. You know that that's that's who that's who the younger people were breaking for. They were breaking for Reagan, whereas now, you know, it's very much the the younger generations who have gone not just left but further left, and you know, are having conversations around you know socialism and even even communism to some extent. It is it is quite fascinating. Um, before we kind of end the show um because we are coming up to the hour now is there anything we'd like to touch on as far as the kind of lasting impact of the new democrats i know toby you've already touched on it a little bit as far as you know these politicians who like pelosi who've, who've stayed around under now the establishment and who saw the, the the feats of the 80s compared to the victories of the 90s is there are, i guess are we still are, are we now seeing that that breakaway that separation from you know, the, the new left of the 60s, 70s, and then the, the new Democrats of the late 80s and 90s and 2000s. And then now we're kind of possibly breaking away to a slightly further left, kind of um, Bernie Sanders friendly kind of left. It, it, is that what the legacy of the new Democrats in 92 election is, is, is the fact that that basically changed what the establishment was for the next 20 years? I think... Um... If you look at the Obama administration, he did not come in with, um, a, you know, a history of democratic failure that he had to mm-hmm. rewrite. You know, I mean, the 2000 election was really close. Uh, 04 was was kind of close, and then he won in 08, and then he had a massive financial crisis. You know, world sweeping financial crisis. With the housing loans, and mm-hmm. um, he had to reorder the economy, and he had to bring in a a healthcare plan. But then the healthcare plan that he chose was not the public option. It was not a universal healthcare plan. There's still ten percent of the population that doesn't have access to um, healthcare at you know free at the source, or and they're still people who have access to healthcare plans 
mean that they were almost insolvent. And he really came up with a much more technocratic, weedy plan that was originally a Republican plan. And so the way he managed that moment, you know, where capital was really vulnerable, he managed it like Bill Clinton would have managed it. Mm, Yeah. So do we place um, Obama in the New Democrats' part? I I would definitely say yes. Mm -hmm. But then Joe Biden is someone who, you know, he worked on the crime bill. Yes. He's someone who supported a lot of these um, policies in the mm-hmm. 1990s. He's not someone who's who's known for, and he's someone who, who once said that, you know, my dad never wanted um, government to fix my problems, but he just wanted at least government to understand my problems. So does he come from the same ideological you know, background to someone like Bill Clinton. And what does that mean for policy going forward? Well, it's an indication if Bill Clinton were running today, he would simply be just be further left on some of these things. You know, certainly on a social side, you know, he would not be against gay marriage. You know, mm-hmm. he, he would not be coming out with X, Y, and Z. You know, we, we hear him now saying how things like, um, you know, don't ask, don't tell was, you know, a bad idea and all this kind of stuff. And it is interesting that we've kind of talked about this just in in, in chatting amongst ourselves that kind of part of the legacy of Bill Clinton is that Democrats and certainly the younger Democrats are now trying to move away from basically everything that he did because they don't want to be associated with, you know, crime bills and don't ask, don't tell and this kind of um, regressive center-left policy, which is... um, I think some people are taking the moment that we live in now, the moment with the need for COVID relief, especially Mm -hmm. the package um, for 2000. Some people are taking that as the end of the welfare policies of um, the 1980s Mm -hmm. and 1990s. Um, And then some other people, even on the center right, are thinking, you know, if America is to have a solid national identity, then maybe they should all have access to healthcare. So I think the structure of the economy might be leading people to towards more sort of center-left, more social democratic policies again, possibly, even people like Joe Biden. But I but I'm not completely sure. But I, but I do get the sense by doing podcasts like this that that these issues are they're generational really, hmm. and the, the the ideas that come from our shared experience of the world, especially out the shared experience of people in that sixty to fifty percent of people who vote, certainly experience of the world at the moment. But the interesting thing about nineteen ninety two is that there was a recession which someone like H.W. Bush was considered to not be, um, not care about or not be working on. Taxes and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, and there was a third party candidate. Yes. So is is it impossible that a liberal Democrat couldn't have won the 1992 election? I don't know. Yeah, and that is something we talked about 
when we did the the press. You know, Ross Perot called um, H.W. Bush and said, you know, uh, I've dropped out now. And, you know, in one of his drop dropouts, I've dropped out now. And I really think Bill Clinton's dangerous. So, you know, uh, he didn't say he was explicitly supporting him. But, you know, would Ross Perot have run third party if Bill Clinton was a liberal Democrat? If it was mm. against Dukakis or against Mondale's, I don't know. Yeah. But it does seem like 1992 was a populist moment um, where people were not, they didn't think that politics was working for them and where the economy was was the main focus. And so if we had a Liberal Democrat running in 1992, could they have won? I don't know. And could the his, this whole history be, be different? Absolutely. And if you are interested in hearing us talk about more about the 92 election and specifically Vaughn laugh herself to sleep with um, <laughs> with the craziness of um, the uh, the Ross Perot um, uh, television debates, then uh, yes, you can check out our episode from uh, just before Christmas on that. Um, Alex, is there anything you'd like to add on just the New Democrat movement in general yeah. or anything just kind of post-92, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to add something about legacy, actually, because what the New Democrats were doing and, um, again, it's correlate, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, especially in, in Blair and New Labour, what they were trying to do was to gain respectability. Um, as uh, no longer the kind of old left, whether you were an old liberal in, in the US or um, kind of old labor in the British context. And they did that by, you know, adopting to all the kind of uh, neoliberal policies effectively, um, and indeed adopting many kind of punitive ones on crime as, uh, you know, as we've already discussed. What's interesting is that as the right has radicalized rightwards um, in this over the past decade, it's the third way, the New Democrats or their, uh, their inheritors who have become the respectable ones. They're the ones upholding respectability. They've effectively become the center, the establishment, and that applies to Biden, applies to Macron in France for that matter. Um, and so, I mean, the, the dynamic that's there is that these were politicians who were, I mean, the original the original wave of the third way were ones who implemented post-politics, this kind of post-ideological politics, um, which is best conceived actually as a strategy of depoliticization um, in which key issues are removed from public contestation. Uh, the key one, of course, in Britain being central bank independence, but you know you can think of various other examples of that. And so po politics becomes about consensus um, and any deviation from that is pathologized. So if you say, no, I want to, maybe we shouldn't uh, close down this factory, maybe it should, jobs shouldn't be shipped overseas. You're seen as just some, uh, you're pathologized as someone you know, trying to hold back progress. Uh, this is inevitable, this is globalization, you have to get on board, um, otherwise you're just a loser. So you, know, you better adapt. Um, and that was a way of pathologizing um, dissent effectively. That has come back to bite them in the ass today very much so. Um, so it's interesting that you, know, you have these new Democrats now who are the ones who are trying to hold together, you know, and, and Hillary Clinton, a perfect example against Trump in the 2016 election, as someone trying to hold together this, this form of post-ideological politics without, real, without you know, enemies effectively, without serious political antagonism um, in which everything is uh, decided in a nice consensual cross-aisle way. Um, and that politics is, is, has disappeared and it's been challenged by the right more than it has been by the left. And that's 
historically novel because mm. you know normally it's the left who bring in politics by challenging the powers that be um and just on the last one last thing which is in reference to the democrats kind of moving a bit leftwards um yes but i think that's still very much in the context of them trying to hold together post politics it's not really trying to lead on anything um and to persuade people of a kind of different way of doing politics it's really just a response to the fact of neoliberal breakdown and the fact that things can't continue uh, as they as they have done for the past three decades um so really it's just the bare minimum and it's again just an adaptation to to forces beyond their control rather than an, any attempt to 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 stake uh, leadership for how the world might look instead mm, interesting and i also think just before there's a, a a key part of the reason why i think they've been able to sustain this this post politics and this this sense of being the new establishment to, you know, um, is that the, the, the demographics of the people who voted for those parties had changed. So traditionally white collar voters were Republicans, you know, traditionally, you know, in the fifties, your doctor probably was a Republican and then blue collar voters were Democrats. You know, it's, it's a little Marxist and a little simple, but you know, that's kind of how it was liberals um scribe liberals were political and part of uh, the upper class but they weren't the general elite in the country most of those people were republicans but what's happened and i think it's you could see it in the 2016 election and in, in 2020 as well is that the people who are white collar who are not wealthy but college educated they split in half for the republicans and the democrats and then the people a little bit below that are more republican than they are democrat and then poorer people but poorer people includes a lot more minorities are still democrats so they changed um the demographics of their voter base and i think that has helped them sustain a post politics because their their voting base feels like it's less you know needing of um paternalistic government redistribution and much more available for i th- i think much more um establishment um and uh, culturally sort of looking down upon other groups and looking down upon the right in a way that was not available to um, liberal politicians in the, in the post-war period where capital was on the back foot, I think, which is, which is also an interesting result of this uh, post-politics period. Uh, is there anything else we'd like to add then to that before the end of the show? I w- was just wondering if before we do finish up, if Alex maybe just wants to introduce the book a little bit more to to the audience before before we go. Is, is there anything else we'd like to add on the New Democrats before we quickly do that? Um, I just wanted to ask a question if I can. Sure. Um, so we're talking about the um, legacy of the New Democrats and how there is some pushback from the left. 
And I'm wondering about something that you said earlier about how the New Democrats kind of ideology was formed in the 90s um, by kind of meeting the modern world. And is that not what some of the pushback is now from more leftists in this more, even more globalized world than in the 90s, where people, working class people from multiple countries can talk to each other online about their lived experience and what their more socialist, more further left governments and economic systems do for them. Do you think that that has an impact on both the legacy of the New Democrats and the Democratic Party at the moment, um, this, this meeting the modern world in that way? Um, is that addressed to me? I mean, or is yeah, that you, in general? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think there certainly is probably some influence in certain sense amongst better connected Americans who have us realize that, I mean, certainly with a healthcare issue that there's something really lacking. But I mean, that information, was it's not as if that information wasn't there before, um, I, I think. You know, it, oh, I think something else is, is going on there. Um, and it's to do with the breakdown effectively of the neoliberal order and the sense that um i mean things one in one sense things can carry on but especially for a lot of people who um who got taken up in the kind of let's say the kind of yuppie thrust of things in the 1980s who have been now spat out the other end uh, facing the kind of longer term consequence of the 2008 crisis and whose expectations for their life and ability to reproduce themselves even as a class even to have a kind of a middle class existence is no longer there so there's a turning back towards uh, the state and in some sense that the state should provide greater welfare provision for health care and so on. And I think that's probably more the more important factor um, as to whether that's adapting to the modern world. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely in, in favor of socialized medicine. I'm in favor of socialized everything. But um, I don't know if that's come just from um, just from kind of cross-cultural diffusion and, and understanding of what's going on elsewhere, though um, no doubt that that maybe hasn't hasn't harmed things in some sense that, oh, but look, look what they do in Denmark. Why can't we have that? Though maybe it's a, maybe that's a, a question to be asked as well. You know, has, has something changed in America that young Americans would look at Denmark and think, hey, that's something that we should do rather than either ignoring or completely dismissing experiences from elsewhere in the world and just thinking that's nothing to do with us. You know, we're America's the best or there is only America and there's no other world out there. I think that, that that's a good point that you both bring up is this idea of, are we now having a, a younger generation, which is simply more connected to the world and, you know, are, will a generation who are coming into their voting age now be more aware of what's happening in Finland and what rights are available there and what security is available there for society compared to say, people coming of age of voting age in the eighties and the nineties where they aren't connecting to e either on a personal level or just kind of more open to this idea. Uh, I, for myself, one, I think one of the most interesting ideas to come out of this is the fact that both the left and the right in America, specifically on, on the poor side of things is there's a rejection of this neoliberalism. And in fact, one of the funniest clips from last year was when I, I can't remember the politician who, or the political figure who went on um, Fox News and uh, was talking to, I think it was um, uh, Carson, uh, what's his name? The, the Tucker Carlson. Tucker, Tucker Carlson. And 
Tucker Carlson was basically agreeing with him that poorer people within America had been kind of screwed over by society and that there wasn't kind of the 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 ability to find jobs and there wasn't ability to kind of connect um to normal america for 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 a lot of these poor working class people and it's kind of funny that you know you you have on the one side you have like the aocs coming up with more policy and more you know accepting of this sort of far left in quotes for america and then on the other side of it you have the more republican side who are still trying to talk about there is a conversation about the establishment has failed Americans and the establishment has failed a generation of people who are continuing to work 60 hours a week and they, they need two or three jobs or, you know, whatever the case may be. And I, I, I guess we'll, we'll find out in time how that's going to play out in the election. But we do know that part of the appeal of Trump, for instance, was this idea of breaking away from establishment. Now, part of their appeal was also breaking away from reality, unfortunately. But th- there was definitely a, a sense of establishment for whatever that means has failed us and we need to move in a different direction. Now, sometimes that still continues to be the case that Americans are just terrified of anything that approaches socialism, or at least they are if they think it's socialism. It's kind of okay if the farmers are getting subsidies from the government just as long as it's the farmers getting subsidies from the government and you don't use the word socialism. But I guess that is maybe one of the questions that we are still waiting to play out, which is how does America reconcile the the inequality growth that's happened in America over the last 30 or 40 years? And what is the answer to that? And is it by having, you know, people like Bernie Sanders who have been campaigning for greater rights over the last, you know, 50 years or whatever it is, or is it a more populist um, Republican uh, offering which is more about trying to fight back almost on a sort of social level about giving them power even though it's obviously based in a very different reality than than our own a lot of the time um is there anything else you guys want to add on on this or uh on Vaughn's question before we uh before we close up no i think um we'll, we'll carry on with um, talking about Clinton on the on the next episode, I think other things are going to come up. But yeah, I, I've I've really enjoyed this, uh, guys. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, before we do close up, then Alex, I don't know if you want to maybe just touch on a little bit on the end off uh, end of history, which is um, the book you have coming out, and maybe just uh, tease that a little bit for our audience, who I, I believe they can pre-order it now, from what I understand. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted to do that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. No, no um, so yeah, the end of the end of history, what's all, what's all that about? I mean, basically, anybody who grew up in the 90s and 2000s, and maybe even the early 2010s, was stricken by a sense, if you were interested in politics, that there wasn't really much politics going on, that it was just um, other than at the kind of administrative level, there wasn't any real clash of ideas, different visions of society, different uh, competing, um, yeah, competing visions about how the, the world might be different. And then suddenly, um, probably around 2016, the world seems to go kind of crazy. And so you go from a situation where there was too little politics to maybe there was suddenly too much politics or that anyway, that things were too shouty um, and rancorous and hysterical. Um, and that's basically the end of the end of history, the, the entry into a new age of 
turbulence um, of maybe not quite ideological competition, um, but at least some sense that things can't carry on the way they are um, and that alternative political actors turn up suddenly on the stage. And what's happened is that that's brought out a really hysterical reaction from the establishment, especially the liberal wing of the establishment, something that we call neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, which is a reaction on the part of the liberal establishment that that's a, that is enable to accept, explain, or respond to political change. Um, so both the challenge from Sanders and Corbyn, as well as uh, Brexit and Trump, um, all brought hysterical reactions, like this can't be happening, um, trying to overturn Brexit because the, 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 the referendum was, which was a democratic election, was seen as illegitimate. Um, the, the constant focus on Trump and whatever he's tweeting, um, and even the reaching for conspiracy theories as a way to explain what's happening. So the constant reference to Putin um, and Russian meddling, um, you know, supposedly inter changing the result of an election in the most powerful country that in history that's ever existed. Um, so with the book, with our, with the podcast as a whole explores and what the book tries to condense, um, you know, in the condense all the discussions we've had over the past four years um, is tr uh, to try to explain that. So we look at themes like post-politics um, and, and the way that it's become challenged by anti-politics, um, basically rejection of political representatives, political establishment politicians. Um, and we look at neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, uh, as well as look at how Italy is the country of the future, how Italy actually in some way encapsulates all these trends and encapsulated them uh, well before anyone else did. So, you know, when we think about Trump and we think Trump is a novel political figure, actually, he would just repeat what Berlusconi was doing mm -hmm. throughout the 90s and 2000s in Italy. And then the book also looks at the, the, the future evolution of political ideologies and where things might go. Um, so, yeah, um, we think it was an interesting project to, yeah. to write and, and hopefully it clarified for us uh, a lot of things and hopefully it does for the readers, too. So, it's, yeah, it's available for pre-order uh, either now or very soon. How did, I'm just curious how the events of 2020, because it was such a crazy year, how, how did that impact the, the writing of the book? And, you know, did it did it crystallize anything? Did it change anything? You've obviously got the pandemic and you've got Black Lives Matter in America, and then you've got the Trump losing and all this kind of stuff. Did, did any of that kind of change or evolve how the, the book was going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's trying to write a, a history of the present um, always has that problem of, trying to kind of chase your own tail almost that like you're like wait 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 hold 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 production we've got to we've got to insert this extra bit um and you know 2020 um a lot of things happened a lot of things yeah. happened in 2020 <laughs> um but fortunately our, our deadline ended up working out quite well we were worried back in february like thinking oh man maybe we're not gonna be able to include what happens in the u.s election and that obviously is quite important to our general thesis of you know um populist challenges or whether you know populism gets defeated or not in the end that turned out to be relatively uh, of relative little relevance compared to uh coronavirus black mm -hmm. lives matter and everything else but um those things obviously were 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 able to be to be brought in so i mean we very much discussed how coronavirus is kind of um, well, the really the nail in the coffin of the end of history, um, as governments use uh, policies which they'd previously abjured, like you know massive payments, guaranteeing people's wages and things like that. Um, so no, we were able to to include it, but at a certain point you've got to, you've got to draw a line and go, okay, up till <laughs> July twenty twenty, this is <laughs> this yeah. is all true. And uh, sorry, just one final question, because obviously you know we're. UK based and we're looking across the pond to, to, to America and you're obviously in Brazil and Brazil has obviously been going through its own um, 
changes as far as leadership and uh, rises of different parties uh, or different political figures over the last couple of years as well. I was wondering how the the election itself, the US election, was kind of covered from the South American side of things and how, how it was kind of covered as far as how Trump was seen. You know, how, how, how did yeah, that, that I mean, play out? I mean, you know, Bolsonaro, who's the most extreme right-wing elected representative anywhere in the world, I think, mm -hmm. um, is, and I, I mean, I say that without hyperbole, I just think that's a statement of fact, um, is, uh, you know, has wedded himself very tightly to Trump for, you know, when the US election was still in dispute, he was the only one who hadn't recognized Biden. Mm -hmm. um, but Bolsonaro himself also has lost a lot of support. I mean, he's, you know, deeply unpopular, though he retains a hard core of support. And the lack of an alternative means that mm -hmm. things aren't, uh, there seems to be nothing at the moment, which will dislodge him from power. But though, nevertheless, I think a lot of the, a lot of the people who are responsible for putting Brazil in the situation that it is, um, supposed centrist, but really the, the center right, um, who, you know, in, in many, many ways kind of broke with, with democracy and tried to um, overturn the Workers' Party in power and so on. A lot of those people are looking at Biden as a, as a sort of fellow traveler and as evidence that they can, that you can get rid of a terrible politician and, and put a more sensible administrator in charge. Um, so there was a lot of like, ah, what, what can we do? What can we learn from Biden? Um, can, Bi can Biden happen here? And then, you know, casting around the Brazilian political scene to try to find um, some, you know, some smiling centrist who, who could uh, fulfill ultimately fairly similar policies to Bolsonaro, but just have a, a degree of administrative competence to make the whole thing run a little bit more smoothly um, because Bolsonaro is an idiot and incompetent and uh, not even incompetent. Incompetence is not the right word. He, he is deliberately destructive. I mean, that's his mode of yeah. politics. Um, so in, in that regard, you know, I, I think there's looking to the U.S., but then even the left starts looking at the U.S. thinking, you know, maybe we need a kind of popular front does the left need to unify with the center? But of course that brings it, you know, in a kind of anti-fascist front, but of course that brings with it its own problems of uh, the left allying with the same people that, you know, kind of threw Brazil into the pit um, in the first place before Bolsonaro. So, you know, it, it, it's complicated. Um, like everywhere, people end up looking to the US to try to find some solution for, its, for their own politics, which is a, is a sort of problematic tendency. Well, I mean, if you guys are looking for a great centrist, I believe Jeb Bush is available. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Well, we have we have our own. <laughs> we have our own, I'm sure. Plenty of political dynasties here as well. So, um, even more than than in the US. So, yeah, we, we've got our own. Thanks. Oh, okay. Well, we'll try and keep pimping out Jeb to every country we can. But um, <laughs> yeah, keep, go for it. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> uh, no luck so far, unfortunately. I'll I'll I'll, I'll keep trying. Right. Uh, I suppose we should probably leave it there. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real yeah, pleasure. You. Really enjoyed it. Um, so from, from, from Alex, from Toby and Vaughn, and from myself, Simon, and from Jeb Bush, who's hopefully still listening, uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll have another podcast for you in the near future. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.